Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome. Glad you're with us. I am preaching on all of 1 Samuel today. We did 1 Samuel about a year ago, a year and a half ago. Uh, we're going to start 2 Samuel in two weeks. Uh, they're really one book that kind of got split in the middle at some point along the line about a thousand years ago. So we're going to keep going in the book of Samuel. Um, I'm kind of doing an overview this week so that you guys kind of get a refresh on what it's about. Some of you weren't here when we went through it. And then next week, you're in for a treat. We're having Presbyterian Mega Polity Sunday. We're going to be ordaining John Weller as a minister during the service. And then afterwards, we're going to have a congregational meeting. And we're going to elect an elder and a deacon, we hope. So I'll be preaching next week on uh, something, I don't know, probably from Second Timothy. Uh, I've had a crazy week. So if today's sermon is a real stinker, that's probably why. But we're going to do First Samuel today. 1 Samuel chapter 2, I'm going to read Hannah's song. This is a part of the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel that gives us an overview of what the whole entire thing is about. Let's read from 1 Samuel chapter 2. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There's none holy like the Lord. For there's none besides you. There's no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Let's ask for God's help. Lord, we ask for your blessing this morning on the preaching of your word. Uh, we don't want to just gain information. Uh, we want to gain true knowledge and understanding of who you are and what you're doing in this world. Help us to see the glory and the goodness of our King Jesus, your son, who died for us and rose again. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, before I went on vacation for a couple of weeks, I was talking to you guys quite a bit about money. So I figured now that I'm back, I would ease back into things with something really simple. So we're going to talk about politics today. <laughs> I'm only halfway joking because I'm giving an overview of 1 Samuel, which does speak secondarily to human political leadership. It does teach us that God demands that human kings should be living with integrity. They should be ruling in fear of him. But the main emphasis of 1 Samuel, when it's giving us an idea of what God uh, wants us to think about human political leadership, 
It mainly wants to show us that the default mode of human political leadership is theft and corruption, destruction, and evil. We should not put our hope in it like everybody else does. But the book of 1 Samuel, while it does speak to those things, it's primarily about something else. It's not primarily about human political leadership. It's about God's political leadership. God is the king, 1 Samuel wants to remind us. At the heart of the New Testament, which is the second part of the Bible that comes after this part of the Bible, where 1 Samuel is, at the heart of the New Testament is the message that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he has come to rule as king over God's creation as a human. Jesus proclaims the first things out of his mouth in his public ministry are that God's kingdom is now present in him. That God's kingdom, God's rule, God's domain is now in the world through him. That he is God's Messiah. This is a word that means that he's God's anointed chosen king. One of the things that Jesus teaches most clearly is that the entire Bible, the entire Old Testament of Israel is all about him. Uh, at the end of the Gospel of Luke, uh, right after his crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus is walking along with a couple of his disciples that don't quite realize who he is. And they're very depressed over what's happened. They thought they had a real winner in Jesus and turn, come to find out he gets crucified by the Romans. He's a loser. And so they're totally depressed. And he's talking to them. They don't quite realize who he is. And he's trying to explain to them, no, 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 these things had to happen. He says to them, he says, wasn't it necessary that the Christ, that means the Messiah, God's King, wasn't it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And then Luke tells us, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, including Samuel, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So as we're looking over 1 Samuel today and preparing to go through 2 Samuel, what we are really focused on is not the election on Tuesday, but we're really focused on Jesus as God's anointed king over his world. Because as you see, as Samuel's detailing the rise of King David, which is what 1 Samuel is mainly about, this book is ultimately showing us what makes Jesus such a great king. David is a picture of a much greater king to come. The book, first, book of 1 Samuel is in three basic sections, all of it about how God is providing a king for his world. The first section of 1 Samuel is chapters 1 to 8. Chapters 1 to 8, where we see God preparing for his king. God preparing for his king. This section of the book is about the rise of this guy named Samuel. Samuel is somebody who kind of blurs the lines between these biblical categories of priest and prophet. He does, things, uh, that, he does both of the things that those roles do. In chapter 2, we have a song that I just read by his mom. Her name's Hannah. And this is right in the wake. She's singing this song right after God has provided Samuel for her. She has not been able to have children for a long time. She's at the bottom of the totem pole in the ancient world. She's getting made fun of. She's uh, getting mocked by her enemies. And God provides a son for her. And she sings this song of celebration as she offers him to the Lord and gives him up to the Lord for his purposes. The song sets up the book's theme about how God is going to rule the world by raising his chosen human king, even though his king is not what the world wants or what the world's looking for. Uh, the main emphasis of, the book, of her song is her joy in God's salvation. She starts out saying, I'm happy about what God has done by the way he's saving us from something we couldn't save ourselves from. In verses 2 and 3 there, she talks about what God's like. She says, there's none holy like the Lord. There's no rock like our God. 
She says to the proud in the world, don't talk so proudly. The Lord is a God of knowledge. He knows. He's watching. He's keeping track. He's not ignoring the people who are getting kicked around. In verses 4 to 8, she talks about how God reverses the world's hierarchy. He reverses the world's categories. He even reverses life and death. She says that the bows of the mighty are broken, but the weak bind on strength. He brings low, she says, and he exalts. Now, why does he do that? At the end of verse 8, she says he does it because the pillars of the earth are his. On them, he set the world. That's a figurative way of saying that God rules over the world. He keeps it steady, even though it often appears to us to be totally out of control, given up to complete chaos. And she says, no, no, this is God's world. God is keeping it steady. God is ruling over it. And so when you boil it down, here's what the book of 1 Samuel is all about. This is really what the entire Bible is all about. In opposition to all pretenders and all usurpers, whether they are human or demonic, the point of 1 Samuel, the point of the whole Bible, is that God is demonstrating that he is the world's true king. He's the only one who's ultimately glorious and wise and powerful and good. Everything he does is to show that that's true about him. The way he does it, though, and this is where the real curveball is, the way that God shows how wonderful and how powerful and how mighty he is, is by working mightily on behalf of the weak. Working mightily on behalf of those who depend on him. Jesus said these people, he called them poor in spirit. Jesus often pointed to children and said, you have to be like a small child enter the kingdom so the whole point of first samuel is that god is the world's real king the way that he rules over the world most of all is by exalting the lowly and the humble what that means for us is that we should be one of these humble dependent lowly people we should be encouraged in the midst of our own suffering our own trouble and the ways that we're struggling in the world the ways that we don't fit into the world's categories or the world's status we should be encouraged we should even be joyful like hannah We need God's salvation. We do not need humanity's salvation because this world is terribly broken. Humanity has gotten itself into a terrible dilemma. We cannot rescue ourselves. Uh, One of the great emphases of the Old Testament is that even Israel, even God's chosen people Israel, are horribly marred by sin. The next section of 1 Samuel shows us this great corruption of God's people Israel. It shows why they, and if if they need it, then we definitely need it. It shows why they need God's king to rule over this world, why the whole human family needs God's king. In chapters 3 to 8, Samuel wants us to see how corrupt God's people have become, why they need a king. In chapter 3, it's expressed in corrupt leaders and priests. The priests are greedy and licentious. They're disregarding God. They don't care about his word. They're not worshiping him the way that he wants. And so God then pronounces judgment on them. In chapter 4, we see the corruption of Israel expressed in superstition, in the the way that the people view God. They treat him kind of transactionally. Like if we kind of do the right things and we go through the right motions, then you have to do stuff for us and you'll give us what we want uh, when we're faced with danger, when we're faced with trouble. Uh, We have this group called the Philistines. They're really important in the book of Samuel. Uh, In chapter 4, they're threatening Israel. And so the superstitious leaders with the people's support take this special box called the Ark of the Covenant that was in the center of the tabernacle where God met with his people through the priests. 
they take this box like a good luck charm into battle. They say, oh, this is kind of like our rabbit's foot. We're going to take this thing out. And if we have this thing with us, then God will definitely make us win these battles. But very shockingly, uh, God lets them lose the battle. He even allows the Philistines to capture this box. The people of Israel have cheapened God's presence. Uh, They've therefore lost it in his judgment on them. Chapters 5 and 6 show us that in spite of all of this, God can still defend himself. Uh, the, he, he humiliates the Philistines. He humiliates their gods so that they eventually send the ark away. They say, get this thing out of here. This God is too powerful for us. And the ark ends up back in Israel, but nobody knows what to do with it. In chapter 7, we see that in spite of Israel's sin, God can still forgive his people. Uh, we have this wonderful picture in 1 Samuel 7 of what Christ would ultimately be and what Christ would ultimately do. We have Samuel stands up as a priest and as a prophet and he prays to God on behalf of a repentant people so that they're saved from their enemies and they get to live in peace. But then in chapter 8, we see the corruption of Israel expressed worst of all. This is one of the most important chapters for understanding the entire Bible. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people of Israel reject God as king by demanding to have a human king, just like the nation's. You see, the Philistines have risen up again. The Philistines are threatening them, and they're afraid. They're afraid that God's no longer going to take care of them, that God won't provide for them or protect them. And they look around, and they see all these other nations that have human kings, and they say, well, that looks pretty good. Things look pretty good for them. I think we need one of those. They think that having a human king is going to be a silver bullet for security and for safety in the world. It's like a lot of people today. But Samuel reminds the people that God is the only king you need. God's always been your king. You haven't needed a human king. He's your king. You just need him. He's always taking care of you. He's going to provide you. He's going to protect you from the chaos and the threats of this world. And he says, this is idolatry. You're rejecting God by demanding a human king. He tells, he tells the people, he warns them. He says, if you've you got to understand the way that human kings work in this world. He says, they're going to steal from you. They're going to enslave you. They're going to take all of your stuff for themselves and for their friends. You do not want this. You do not want to be ruled by a human king. God's a wonderful king. But the people say in chapter 8, verse 19, they say, no, there shall be a king over us. We want to be like the nations so that our king can judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. A couple chapters later, Samuel uh, says to the people of Israel, you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and all your distresses. And you've said to him, set a king over us. Samuel, later on, as he's saying farewell to the people, as he's kind of handing over the reins to the human king that God gives them in judgment on them, Samuel tells them that you have gotten the king that you asked for, but it's God's judgment upon you. God has granted your sinful request. They're going to learn the hard way that God's way of ruling is far better than the world's way of ruling. And so that takes us to the second main section of 1 Samuel. It starts out with God kind of preparing the board for his king to rise. In the second section, chapters 8 to 15, uh, we are still preparing for this human king to come that God has chosen. But the way that God is preparing now is by giving a great contrast to what his king is going to be like. God grants Israel their request for a human king, but he's a very bad king. He's an evil king. He's a king like the nations. We have in this second section of 1 Samuel the rise and the failures of King Saul and then his rejection by God. In many ways, Saul is a picture of what God's king should not be. Uh, He's, by way of contrast, showing us what makes Jesus such a great king. In chapters 9 to 12, we see Saul rising. 
but we already get these hints that trouble is brewing with him. Uh, He fits the bill, we are told repeatedly, for the world's kind of king. Uh, The book keeps telling us how handsome he is, how strong he is, how tall he is. Uh, He's very impressive. The people love him. They they think, well, this is great. This is exactly what we were looking for. Uh, We even get some clues that he has something that kind of sounds like humility. You might think, oh, wow, you know, he's even uh, got a good head on his shoulders. But in these chapters, you quickly start to see that in reality, Saul is superficial. He's aloof. He's insecure and and fearful. He's reluctant to do what God says, and he makes excuses about why he doesn't have to do it. And when he does do what God wants, it's usually, we're told, because God's spirit has rushed upon him and moved him to act like God's king should. But the dominant note of Saul's life, the dominant note of Saul's rule, is his disobedience. His disobedience. In chapters 13 to 15, we get two stories about him disobeying God's word and then God rejecting him as king. The first time, he offers some sacrifices uh, in the middle of a battle that he's been explicitly told were not his to offer. These were for Samuel to offer. Uh, But he does it anyways because he's trying to get God to work for him uh, because he's afraid of this army that's out there fighting against him. He's fearful because he... And so he disobeys God. He thinks he knows better than him. Uh, He's impatient. He can't wait around on God's timing, on God's way of doing things. Uh, We see also that he's self-dependent. He doesn't depend on God. He depends on his own ideas, his own understanding, his own strength. And so he disobeys. Samuel rolls up in the middle of it and says to him, Now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. In chapter 15, we get another story about Saul's disobedience. It's a little different this time. He kind of sort of halfway tries to pretend that he's obeyed God. But really, he's just ignoring God again. He's disobeying him. This time, God has commanded Saul to wipe out a nation called the Amalekites. This was a a nation that God had been very patient with for a long time. They were very wicked people. Uh, God gave them lots of time to change, and they didn't do so. And so as he sometimes does in the Old Testament, he tells Saul, it's time to go destroy this group of people. God explicitly tells him, do not show them any pity. Do not show them any mercy. But Saul thinks he knows better. Saul thinks he has a better idea. He thinks God has gotten a little carried away, being a little too intense, a little too wrathful. And so Saul decides to save the best stuff. Uh, He decides to save the king. Uh, He deludes himself into thinking that that I've done what God actually wanted, uh, that I had a better idea than God did, and I think he'll be really happy about the way I've changed up his command. So when Samuel calls him out on this, he says, what are you doing? Uh, Saul tries to say, no, 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 I really obeyed. And Samuel says, no, you didn't. This is what he told you to do. You didn't do it. You have to always listen to everything he says. So at that point, Saul blames the people. He says, well, they made me do it. Uh, I got afraid of what they were going to think of me. I saw that they were starting to leave because they were afraid. And so I, you know, kings are supposed to be men of action. I I took action. I did something about it. And then you get these uh, famous words from Samuel. To obey is better than sacrifice. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day. He's given it to a neighbor of yours who's better than you. Saul's life is a real tragedy. And the dominant note of that life is disobedience. So now the book of Samuel takes a major shift. We move on from the failures of the people's king now to the rise of God's king. Uh, This is that third section of the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel. It starts in chapter 16. 
First section is chapters 1 to 8. Second section is chapters 9 to 15. This last section is chapters 16 to 30. God now, he's prepared for his king. Now God provides his king. And then God protects him. God provides and protects his king. We still have this dark backdrop of Saul's decline into darkness and madness. But against that backdrop, you see the rise of David. Most of all, you see his victories. You see God providing for him, taking care of him. But most of all, what you see in David's life is his suffering. You see his suffering. He's a picture of what God's king should be. He's a picture of what makes Jesus such a great king. But even David has his flaws, and that's going to become one of the main themes of 2 Samuel. Even David is marred by sin. Even David is not the king that he should be, and he's the high water mark for Israel's kings. In chapters 16 and 17, what we learn about David is that he's a lowly boy who trusts a mighty Lord. He's a lowly boy who trusts a mighty Lord. Uh, in chapter 16, God tells Samuel, who's really depressed about Saul and how things have worked out with him, even though he kind of knew this was going to happen. God tells Samuel, stop moping around. Uh, time to go anoint a new king. Uh, David ends up being the youngest and the smallest of a whole bunch of brothers. Samuel rolls into the house. God says, go to this house. The, my king is in this family. He goes to the family and he sees these older brothers and he says, oh, wow, these guys are really impressive. They're really tall. Uh, surely, you know, that one over there, the oldest one, the biggest one, the strongest one, that must be God's king. And God says this to him. He says, don't look at his appearance. Don't look on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So Samuel works through all the brothers. God says, no, 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 none of these. And then Samuel says, well, do you have any other kids? And the dad says, well, yeah. I mean, I got the littlest one, but he's out there with the sheep. I, you know, didn't realize you were looking for a kid. And Samuel says, go get him. He says, this is it. It's an echo of Hannah's song about how God does not work through the mighty but how God works through the lowly. Some of you are in very low places today. Some of you have had very hard weeks. This should be an encouragement to you. You're in a great place for God to work through you. We have this uh, emphasis on how God works through the lowly reiterated in this famous story about David and Goliath. That's 1 Samuel chapter 17. The story underscores David's faith in a powerful God who can do whatever he wants. It's contrasted in that story with the great fear that Israel has of Goliath and the Philistines. Even the great fear and inaction of Saul himself, who's sitting way back behind the front lines, not really sure what to do, not doing anything himself. But David rolls up to bring his brothers some food, and he says, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should be defying the armies of the living God? He eventually gets to, he says, I'll go out and fight him. God will take care of me. And so little boy David goes out to battle Goliath, and this is what he says to him. David says to Goliath, this great, mighty, fearsome warrior, David says, Today the Lord will deliver you into my hand, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and so that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into my hand. David whizzes off one stone out of his sling, kills Goliath, chops off his head. It's a great, wonderful rout of the Philistines. The next 20 chapters in the second Samuel are demonstrating for us David's faith and integrity in the midst of his lowliness, and particularly in the midst of his suffering. 
You see, David has been anointed. He's been secretly anointed as the next king. But Saul, through this whole stretch of the story, Saul is still on the throne. David is not yet installed. People don't recognize, people don't realize that he's God's king. God did not make it simple by saying, well, Saul blew it, so I'm just going to kill him, give him a heart attack. He's going to drop dead, and then David's going to become the king. And this is all going to be really simple and neat and clean, and everything's going to be wonderful. God didn't do that. God left Saul on the throne, even though he's rejected him as king, and he secretly anointed David and let David learn over many years what it meant to trust God, what it was going to look like to be the kind of king that God wanted. God matures David. God wants to show him over and over and over again that he is the one who will provide for him, that he is the one who will protect him, that he rules entirely by God's will, in God's timing, and in God's way. He reminds David over and over and over again that God exalts the humble, that he does not save with sword and spear, that the battle is his. It's a great foreshadowing, this period of suffering in David's life. It's a great foreshadowing of how Jesus would be God's anointed and victorious Messiah, even though he faced great suffering and opposition, even though he was humiliated on the cross. This is why those disciples were so depressed after the crucifixion, even though Jesus had been warning them, I'm going to be crucified. They couldn't fathom. How could God's king be humiliated so terribly? In chapters 18 to 20, uh, David, now anointed, having just defeated Goliath, he sees many victories over the Philistines. He enters into Saul's army. He becomes very popular among the people of Israel. But at the same time, there's a great deal of jealousy from Saul. Saul's becoming very fearful of him. He's very insecure. He begins to hate David. He even tries to kill him. At the same time, though, we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks, Saul's own son, Jonathan, comes to love David. Jonathan is loyal to David, even though it means that he's not going to become the king. Chapters 18, uh, verses 20 and 12 and 14, we hear this summary statement of this period of David's life. It says that Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. David had success in all of his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. All Israel and Judah loved David. But Saul tries to kill him, and so David flees. Chapter 21 begins a long section where David's on the run from Saul. He's struggling to trust the Lord. There's one point where he becomes so fearful of what's going to happen to him that he flees to go live among the Philistines. And he kind of lives uh, this facade about working on behalf of the Philistines. It's a bizarre time in David's life. It's very uh, morally questionable what he's doing. Uh, but overall, David is a man who's seeking God's will. We are told over and over again that he listened to the Lord. He asked the Lord. He praised the Lord. What should I do? Will you help me? What's going on? And God's speaking to him very intimately. At the same time, you're hearing about Saul descending into greater darkness and evil. In chapters 24 through 26, we have these couple of stories about how David spares Saul's life. He gets two chances to kill Saul. And his men are saying, look, this is your chance. God's giving you an opportunity to become the king. So, you know, just take him out. You can do it right now. The first time uh, David gets a chance to kill him and refuses to do it, he says this to Saul after the fact. He says, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. In chapter 25, David, facing a different enemy, learns that he must not work salvation for himself. He's tempted to do so, and then he learns at the last minute that God will save him. Chapter 26, he gets a second chance to kill Saul. 
his men are saying, this is it, David, you blew it the first time. How could it be any more clear what God wants you to do? Look, you can become the king right now. Just kill him. David says this. He says, the Lord will strike him or his day will come to die or he will go down into battle and perish. May the Lord deliver me out of all tribulation. David trusts the Lord to provide for him in the way that God has said he will. David knows, unlike Saul, he should not take matters into his own hands. He needs to depend on the Lord, even though it means great suffering for him for a long time. One of the things that David is having to learn through this whole period, it's one of the most common themes of the New Testament. Uh, So often we want to have the crown, but without the cross. Jesus says, no, there's no crown without a cross. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to die. You have to pick up my cross. You have to follow me on the way to the cross. You die with me so that you might rise with me. Uh, One of my favorite verses uh, in the Bible is in Acts chapter 14. Um, Paul is going back to visit some of the churches that he planted in what we today call Turkey. And it says he's encouraging them, he's strengthening them, he's reminding them about what God's doing. And this is the summary of what he goes to teach these churches, these new Christians. He says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Uh, When I was a college pastor, I was once asked to go give a talk to the high school youth group to give them encouragement about uh, becoming an adult and being a Christian. And I talked about this verse, and I talked about how much they were going to suffer if they wanted to be Christians. Uh, They all were looking at me very strangely. We're not expecting it. But this is the point. If you want to have the crown, you need to take the cross also. David has to learn this. He's going through great suffering, trusting God. In chapter 27, David continues to trust God even though he sometimes really struggles to do so. Uh, But we also are in a section of the book here at the end of 1 Samuel where where Saul is falling into total darkness and even death. God has now gone totally silent on Saul. It says that no matter what Saul does, no matter how he tries, God will not speak to him anymore. He refused to listen when God did speak. And so now God says, I won't talk to you at all. Saul's facing the Philistines. He doesn't know what to do. He's very afraid. And so what he does is he turns to the occult. He goes to a a witch and he says, please, I need some help. Call up the ghost of Samuel. So he'll tell me what to do. I don't know what to do. Uh, Somehow she's able to call up Samuel and Samuel shows up, uh, but he has very bad news for Saul. It's the same thing that he said to him before he died. He said, you didn't obey. Therefore, God has become your enemy. So tomorrow you're going to die in battle. You had your chance, Saul. You've been rejected. You didn't want to obey. Meanwhile, David, who's been living among the Philistines under this elaborate ruse about how he's going to work on behalf of them. Again, it raises a lot of questions for us about where David is at morally and spiritually. Uh, He's been living among the Philistines in this crazy way. uh, And God arranges it so that he gets removed from this battle that's about to happen between the Philistines and Saul. God is taking David out of it so that David has nothing to do with Saul's death. So that it's eminently clear that God is the one who has put David into power that David didn't put himself into power. David learns again that the battle is the Lord's. So that's what 1 Samuel is all about. To take the line from the end of Hannah's song, it's showing us that God guards those who humbly depend on him, that he defeats those who rise against him, and he does it by exalting his suffering lowly king. Here's what it means. It means that we need... And we have a king who humbly depends on God, Jesus. We have a king who humbly depends on God. Listen to Hebrews chapter 5. 
In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. You see all through his human existence, the dependence of Jesus on the Father. But we don't just need a king who's dependent. We need a king who defeats God's enemies. Revelation chapter 17 says this, they will make war on the lamb, referring to Jesus, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings. Those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. The final closing note of the Bible is this crazy book of Revelation. But the main point of it is that Jesus conquers. Jesus wins. Nobody can oppose him in the end. But it's not just something for the future. It's not just a conquest that's something we just have to wait around for. And in the meantime, hope for the best. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 12, right before he's crucified. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. In his death, the world looks at his death and they say, this is his greatest humiliation. It's his greatest defeat. But Jesus says, no, this is my conquest. I'm defeating the world by dying for the sins of my people. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, again, talking about Jesus' conquest and victory that we enjoy even now. 1 Corinthians 15, it's Paul talking about the meaning of Jesus' resurrection. Paul says, Jesus must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. This is one of the things we saw in the book of Ephesians, that Jesus is currently reigning over the universe. He's in charge. He's ruling over it all. The world's not out of control. It's under his control. So we need and we have a king who depends on God. We need and we have a king who defeats God's enemies. And we need and we have a suffering king who's been exalted by God. Philippians chapter 2. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and he's bestowed on him the name that's above every name. God has lifted up his suffering king, particularly in the resurrection, in raising him out of the grave. What this means for us today is that we should rejoice in God's king. We should put our hope in him and our trust in him. We should be happy like Hannah that God has saved in such a wonderful way. But this, like him, we need to be depending on God too. We need to humbly depend on the strength that God provides through Jesus. Jesus says in John 16, right before his death, he says, I've said these things so that in me you'll have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, just like David did, just like Jesus did. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, Jesus says. I have overcome the world. We depend on God, but at the same time, we also remember that his victory is ours too. It's not just his victory, it's our victory. We too conquer with Jesus. We don't conquer in the way that the world conquers. We don't conquer in the way that the world's kings conquer or their friends conquer, but we do conquer in and with him. The apostle John, an old man, says this, everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. You could translate as conquers the world. And this is the victory that's overcome the world. Our faith, our dependence, our trust. We don't conquer the world like the world does. We don't conquer with votes, with charisma, with power, with education, with connections, with wealth, with willpower. We don't even conquer the world with piety. We conquer the world with faith, with dependence on God. God's provided a mighty king to protect and to provide for you. 
in the midst of all the world's danger and trouble. You can trust him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your King Jesus has been exalted. That even David, as wonderful as he was, was the barest foreshadowing of how much better Jesus would be. Uh, we look at the world and it seems that it's shaking on its foundations, that the pillars are, are tottering. But we recall that you are the one who rules over it. You set the world on its foundations. You keep it steady. You rule over it through your son, Jesus. Give us great faith to trust you in the midst of a world that seems to be going so crazy, so chaotic, so dangerous. So many questions for so many of us, so many fears. Help us to obey. Help us to trust. Help us to depend. Thank you that Jesus has gone before us. Help us, and we pray in his name. Amen.